May it be so, right? One thing to sing those words. It's a harder thing to do them. Amen? All right, would you uh, join me in a prayer? We're going to launch off on the sermon this morning. Uh, Lord, for those that are here that have experienced the joy of salvation, when we got to the place where we were no longer the solution to our problem, we were, we were lost. You rescued us. Uh, and for those that are here that are looking for that joy, I pray for both of us that you would meet us here. Pray the words of that song. In, in some small way in all of our lives. Um, God, I, I want to know that sacred flame of what it's like to have your spirit alive in me. And I pray that would be a little more in my life because of what you do um, in my life and in our life together. In your name, amen. Hey, my name is Seth. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland Hills. Uh, it's great to be with you. Um, Oftentimes, we get to hear in this pulpit from people who are experts at a subject, uh, and that's not the case today. Uh, today, I'm going to talk to you uh, about the fruits of the Spirit as we continue this uh, series on the Holy Spirit. What does a life look like that's being transformed by the power of God? Um, how do our lives actually change? How do the words of those songs of like, I surrender all, I give myself up, that's really hard. How does that happen? And so I thought I'd start the sermon out uh, with some questions, um, questions that I have that maybe you have too. Um, how comes there's some people, they believe in God, they go to church their whole life, but they are joyless, they're judgmental, no one wants to be around them. And there's other people outside of the church who aren't Christians, and they are joyful and generous and honest, and everybody wants to be their friend. Why is it that non-Christians can look more like Jesus than Christians sometimes? And how is God going to sort that out? I don't know. Why is it that some little babies right from the start are set up to struggle with addiction and anxiety and depression, social uh, challenges, relationships are going to be difficult for their whole lives, and other people seem to be born with resilience and charm. They're cheerful, emotionally intelligent. It's almost as if they're pre-wired to have a better life than other people. Why is that? I don't know. Why is it that some parents work really hard at parenting? They do everything right. They pray for their kids. They pray with their kids. They bring them to church. They get them involved in youth group. They go to seminars about parenting. They do everything right, and their kids are monsters. <laughs> and there are other parents whose lives are train wrecks. Marriages are a mess. Homes are unstable. And their kids grow up to be fabulous and brilliant. Why is that? I don't know. Why is it that for some people, spiritually growing and their relationship with God can be so hard and elusive? One person can read the Bible, it seems like they hear messages from God, they get so much out of it, they're able to put it into practice. They're filled with joy and life. And another person reads the Bible and gets stuck, can't seem to get anything out of it, doesn't hear God, gets frustrated and joyless, sometimes arrogant and judgmental. Why is that? They're both reading the Bible, two different responses. Why is that? I don't know. 
Why is it that some people talk about the spiritual life like they're experts, and yet when you spend any time with them, no one wants to be with them? You don't see anything that looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. They're not living out the stuff that they think other people should do. Why is that? I don't know. Some of you are wondering right now, why is this church paying this guy to talk about a subject that he doesn't know much about? I don't know. I don't know. I do want to talk to you today about fruit. What is the color and shape and taste and sweetness of what you can actually sense? You can touch it. You can feel it. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can see these things on the outside of a person's life, your life and my life, when the Spirit is active. What are the fruits of a life where the Spirit is alive? But in order to talk about that, I have to talk about where does life come from for us? Uh, And to do that, I want to talk to you for a little while about our souls. Uh, now, I want you to know I'm indebted to the writing of two different people, uh, Dallas Willard and his book, Renovation of the Heart. Uh, I'm going to go over a few things from that book, and also a brand new book out called Soul Keeping uh, by a guy named John Ortberg. And in that book, he tells a story um, about, he was, he was at the grocery store, and he's a pastor, so he drives kind of a clunker Honda. Uh, he's pulling out of his parking spot at the grocery store, and he hears, uh, uh, he hears a little crash. He wasn't paying attention. He hit the car behind him. So he pulls back into his stall. He gets out of his car to go look at the damage. It's not a dent. It's not a crunch. He says it's a line. It's, it's almost decorative. <laughs> says the problem is because the car that he hit is not a clunker. This person is clearly not a pastor. Uh, he said he, the car he hit was an Italian car. It rhymes with the word Terrari. So he wants to walk away from it, but he leaves his name and number. Uh, The next day, the owner of the car calls him uh, and says, I just need you to know, I have to have this car in mint condition. I love this car. It's my baby. John says, oh, okay. Um, So he says he's going to call him back the next day when he finds out what the repairs are going to be. So he calls him the next day. Uh, gets on the phone and says, I just need you to know that I had the body shop look at this little mark, and they said it can't be buffed out. A whole panel is going to have to get replaced. So he says, oh, okay. Uh, he said, I'll call you back the next day and let you know what, what's going to happen with that. So he calls him back the next day and he said, okay, I just need you to know that uh, actually the, the local dealer can't take care of this panel. It has to get sent to the dealer in Italy. True story. So he says, okay. Next day, the guy calls back and says, look, this whole thing has upset me so much. I'm just going to replace the whole car. You don't owe me anything. So John said, well, if you're done with the old one, right? This guy loved his car. And uh, I don't know much about cars, but some of you guys do. If you love something like a car, If that's of immense value to you, then you become a student of it. You figure out how do cars work? What are the different components of cars? What happens when a car goes wrong? How do you fix a car? What's the most valuable thing that you own? The master teacher of life, Jesus, said it this way. 
He said, what does it profit a person if you get everything in the world that you want? Now, before you dismiss this too much, everything in the world would be amazing, right? Imagine on one day you met the person of your dreams, you won the lottery, you inherited a billion dollars, you were instantly promoted to be the CEO of your favorite company that you started. Like, just stack all those things up. If your career and your family and your marriage and your bank account and your retirement and your overall enjoyment and health, if all of those things, if you could get as much of those things in the world as you possibly could and stack them on this side, Jesus said, if the price that you pay to get all that is your soul, you made a bad deal. Jesus says your soul is the most valuable thing that you have. Are you a student of it? Do you understand the different components of it? Do you know how it works? Do you know what happens if it goes wrong, what to do about it? If I was to ask you in just the most clear way, don't say it out loud or share it with a neighbor. If I was to ask you in one sentence, tell me what is the function in your life of your soul? What is your soul? What would you say? For most of my life, I would have stammered with a bunch of nebulous language that was real general, but not really known what a soul was. My hope today is that all of us walk out of here with a little better picture of what that's like. Because the cost is immensely high. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my what? My soul. Restores my soul. So what is a soul and how does it work? Now, our senior pastor, uh, Greg Boyd, when he teaches a sermon that's uh, going to require some intellectual thinking uh, and maybe stretch for a little bit, uh, he asks us to put our thinking caps on. So I'm going to ask you all, are you up for putting your thinking caps on for a little bit this morning? Um, and it might actually be helpful to take your bulletin and flip it on the back. I'm going to be drawing a diagram. It might be one of the best ways that you can take some of these questions with you. I want you to know your problems this morning are not going to get completely solved by one sermon. But hopefully this is a nudge in a direction where God's spirit will keep leading and keep teaching you uh, long after this one. So here we go. What are the different components that make up your life? I just mentioned that your soul is the most valuable one. What are some of the other parts? Now, um, at the very center of who you are, there's this thing that you have that's called your will. Your will is the smallest and most central part of what makes you, you, what makes you a human being and different from the other ones that you're sitting next to. Your will, uh, one of, two other words that the Bible uses for a will, your heart and your spirit, your heart and your spirit and your will, those are all three the same things in biblical language. It's you have the power to choose. You choose things based on what you want. And we all know this because uh, if you've raised children or been around friends that have raised children, uh, one of the first things that children figure out is that they have a will. And it becomes apparent in two words. After they learn the word mom, which they always learn first, I never understand why that's the case. It's never dad first. It's always mom first. And then after mom is a little two-letter word that you will hear for the rest of your life out of that little rascal. What's that word? No, that's the will. 
Okay? Uh, now, there's another word that they learn after that two-letter word. It's a four-letter word, and you're going to hear that the rest of their life. And that one is mine. No, and mine. That's language of the will. I can choose, and I have things that I want. That's your will. Did you know that your will was created to surrender to God? It's how it was designed and made. And when it does not do that, it's the first sign of what a ruined life looks like. Your soul was designed to surrender to God. That's why Jesus says many times, I'm not doing my will here. I do the will of who? The Father. Jesus modeled what it looks like to have a will that was surrendered. Now, outside of the will, outside of the mine and the no, uh, you have a mind. I know some of you sitting next to people don't think the person next to you has a mind. They do, I promise. You have a will and you have a mind. Your mind is filled with all kinds of thoughts and observations and perceptions. It's constantly moving. A few weeks back in this series, I taught a sermon called uh, A New Mind, where we talked about how that works. I don't have time to get fully into it. But your mind, uh, in our world, we often think that mind is for thoughts and your heart is your emotions. But your heart is part of your will. Your mind, in biblical language, and actually scientifically, contains both your thoughts and your feelings. And you were designed so that your mind would have thoughts that are always good and right and noble and true. And we all know that everybody that goes to church only has those thoughts, right? <laughs> and your emotions were made to feel, to be, to, to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience. To only think thoughts and to only ever have desires that are in line with your will. Your will is surrendered to God. Your mind is in line with that surrender. So every thought is surrendered to God. Every desire is surrendered to God. Exactly the way that you and I both live, right? Outside of that, you have a body. You're not just a will. You're not just a mind. You've been given a little kingdom of flesh and bone and blood and nerves. This is your little power pack, right here. It's the physical way that you have an existence. It's a place that you can take the things that you want and set your mind to those things that you want and actually go get those things that you want. Right? It's the worst thing about kids is at some point they become mobile. It's like when they're little, they can want terrible things, but they're stuck in a high chair or a little cradle. Uh, as they can get mobile, then you have real problems because now they can move around and get what they want and cause all kinds of problems, right? But your body was made to be your power pack, the place where your eyes and your ears and your mouth, what they do is they communicate your thoughts and your desires that are surrendered to God so that they're always filled with love and joy and peace and wholeness. That when your hands touch something, it's out of love and goodness and generosity. Every word that comes out of a mouth is for building people up and never for tearing people down. This is the life that you were designed for. Now, outside of that, you live in a social world. Your life is affected by other people around you, and your life affects other people around you. We watched that video that talked about how um, all these different people, uh, in fact, Greg said it literally this way. He said, that woman sowed seeds into my life that produced fruit still to this day. 
Where do seeds come from? Usually inside of fruit. The fruit of your life will affect the other people that are around you. My name is Seth McCoy. I am the son of Tim McCoy. Tim McCoy is my father, and his life changed my life. It impacted me. It shaped me. I'm the son of Jan McCoy. She is my mother. Her life transformed my life. And I have three little ones, and my life is going to affect their lives. And we're part of a church community where our, what happens in our will and our mind and our body, they don't just affect us. They affect the people that are around us. And outside of that, the largest part of you and the most valuable part of you, it's called your soul. And your soul's main job description is to run your life. It's sort of like the operating system of your life. It is designed to take each one of these components and help them to work together to connect you to God. So that what happens in your will, your will is always surrendered to God. So that your mind is only thinking thoughts and having desires that are in line with what God wants. And then your body only reaches out and does and takes action in line with your mind and your will. And so the only effect that you ever have on the people that are around you are things of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And then your soul is at rest. It's your soul's job. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your strength and your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. End of story. Done. That's a soul at rest. But we have a little problem because when we were first given a will, our earliest ancestors were in a garden where there was two trees and the authority in this garden said, hey, you can eat from all the trees in the garden, especially from one tree. You should eat from that tree all the time. It's the tree of life. There's good things on that tree. Eat as much of that fruit as you possibly want to. There's another tree. Just stay away from it. Uh-huh. What happens to people when you tell them not to do something? All they can think about is, why can't I do that? And what would happen if I could do that? Probably I'm missing out on something amazing. I'm going to go do that. Now, that was only Adam and Eve. That has nothing to do with you and I. We would never think of such a thing, right? But we did. And we took our will, which is supposed to be surrendered to God, and we decided, I want my own thing. So we have a problem with our will, and that is our will doesn't want the one thing. This is why Jesus so often preached about this. Just seek the kingdom of God first. Make your life about that one thing being surrendered to God. James talks about it like this. He says a double-minded man is totally unstable. What does he mean by that? Actually, the word that he used for mind, suke, the word that we get psychology from, that word actually means soul. Did you know psychology started out as the study of the soul, and now it's turned into the study of the self? How we've gone wrong. If I have two souls, if I have two minds, there's two things that I want, my life is going in two directions, now I have a problem. Because 
if my will isn't surrendered to God, if my will is pointed towards my own selfish ambition, and then my body then is carrying out that thing of like, all right, I want to go get what it is that I want, and that it's affecting the other people that are around me. My soul has the hardest job in the world to do. How do I try to connect this person to God when they don't want it? They want something else. And their body is broken down. It's filled with appetites and desires and habits and addictions. I just have to tell you, your body can get so filled with addictions and habits and appetites, your willpower cannot overcome it. A body filled with addictions and appetites and a mind that has regular patterns of sin and selfishness, these two things will eat your will for breakfast. It's too small. Because we as human beings, we really want two things. If we're really, really honest, we want two things. I want to be a good person. I want to think of myself as the kind of person that's good. And at the same time, I want selfish gain. I really do. I want stuff for me. I want to pursue the things that I want. So how can I pursue the things that I want and still be a good person? See, here's where we have this amazing thing. Actually, researchers at Duke uh, saw that this is the common thread in most every human being. We have two things that we want. We, we have this need to be a good person. No one is comfortable if you say, you're a bad person. They go, yeah, I sure am. No problem. I have this need to be a good person, but I also want selfish things. And so my, my body will pursue those selfish things. But I have a problem. In my mind, I have a need to think about myself as a good person. So uh, researchers at Duke found that we have this ability in our mind called cognitive flexibility, where we're able to disconnect two things from each other. My body can pursue things that are bad, but I'm not bad. I'm a good person. And our mind does what's called rationalizing. The problem is, once I rationalize one time, it's, it's proven. Once I rationalize one time, I become able to rationalize with something even more bad the next time because now I'm training my mind. You know what, you know what the Bible calls cognitive flexibility? Lying to ourselves is what it is. And you can start as small as you want to. Go take 11 items to the express lane at Target. Nobody does that, right? <laughs> and doing that makes you just a little more likely the next time to, to cheat or be dishonest just a little bit more. Cheat on an expense report. Fudge a number on your tax return. Look at your neighbor in class for an answer on an exam. And you can do that and you go, oh, I did cheat, but I'm a good person. The problem is, at a certain point, we can't do this anymore. That progression keeps moving to where what's happening in our body and in our minds is no longer connected. We can no longer say that, like, we're actually a good person. And you know what happens? In a situation like this, the mind gives up and quits, and behavior totally breaks down. 
So like, for instance, I'm on a, I'm on a big diet to cut my calories back. And up until seven o'clock at night, I've been doing really good. And then it all starts to break down. I have a cheeseburger and then I get French fries with the cheeseburger. And by 10 o'clock at night, when I'm looking at mint chip ice cream in the freezer, I think to myself, I'm already 2000 calories over for the day. What's the big deal? I'll just have ice cream, right? Social scientists, you know what they call that effect? Uh, it actually has a technical term. It's called the hell with it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making that up. That's real. And with cheeseburgers and french fries and ice cream, it's no big deal. But what about when it comes to alcohol? When someone says, you know what, I, I don't have control of this anymore. I might as well just drink myself to death. And they've lost, we've lost our will and our mind has given up, and our mind and our will are now enslaved to this addiction in our body. And what's happening to the people that are around us? What's happening to the soul? You ever heard someone say, I, I can't keep my life together. I'm falling apart. You ever hear somebody say that? You know what that is? That's the cry of the soul. Because your soul is made to take your whole existence and connect you to God. And when it can't do that, it will work as hard and hard as it can. But at some point, it gets tired. And Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you what? I'll give you rest. Yeah. Your will and your mind and your body... It's been deeply affected and ruined by this thing that's a big deal in the Bible, but in our culture and our society, we don't like to talk much about it anymore. It's just a one small three-letter word. It's called sin. Our turning away from and disobedience to God, our unwillingness to take our will and say, I want my will submitted to the Father, our inability to do this has led to minds that are a mess, how many times a day do you have thoughts that aren't good and right and noble and true? How many times do you have desires that aren't going to lead you towards love and joy and peace and patience? They're going to lead you towards selfishness and rage and anger and malice. How many times a day? This is why Jesus had to diagnose our condition and say, yeah, 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 I know you haven't killed anyone, but have you ever hated someone? It's the same thing. The person who hates is not more holy than the person who murders. It's the same thing. Sin has led to a depraved mind, Paul said. And he said that mind has led to there's sin in your members. Sin has worked its way through our bodies. And I grew up in a church that used to preach a lot about, like, we need to get out there and save souls. And that sounds so stupid and cliche, doesn't it? Except when you realize that we're surrounded by people in our city and in your neighborhood, their lives are falling apart. And their soul cannot hold it together. Their soul is exhausted. Who can save a soul? There's only one person. There's only one man, and there's only one way that a soul gets healed. Remember I was telling you about that, the, uh, that condition called the hell with it? This problem that we have that inside of us, inside all of us, we have this will to be a good person, a will that wants to take us to God, and we also have a will that wants selfish gain. Uh, there's a, a European writer. He was a Presbyterian. He wrote this great story about a character who was a doctor, 
He was a doctor in the Victorian era, so doctors were like honored and respected. And so he had this need to maintain an image that like, I'm a respected good person who does what's good and right and true. The problem is, inside of him, there was another force that was at work that wanted him to go after things that were like filled with greed and selfish ambition and anger and lust, resentment and anxiety and greed and fear. But he couldn't let that person be visible to other people. He was so frustrated by living almost like there was two people living inside of him. And this was a constant fight for him. So he was a doctor. He developed a little potion that he could drink. And when he would drink this potion, what it actually did is it allowed him to end the fight between the two because he just became two people. Whenever he wanted to, he could drink the potion and become this alter ego that was now free to completely pursue selfishness and greed and lust and power. Funny thing is, is he names this other character. He can't be a doctor because doctors are honorable. He has to just be a mister. Uh, and then his, his last name uh, is real interesting because what do you do with the parts of you that are filled with selfish ambition and lust and anger and resentment and greed and anxiety and fear? What do you do to those things? I hide them. He names this guy Mr. Hyde. Some of us know this story as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The problem that Dr. Jekyll had is that he, he wasn't at home with the fact that inside of him, he was split into two people. I want to be good, but I want selfish ambition. He said, I'll solve my problem by becoming two different people. Do you know how many Christians do that same thing? I'll just become two different people. The thing is, is this thing of bearing fruit, it's a fight. And it's a war. And I want to challenge and encourage you not to quit. Paul in Galatians, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about this, this dichotomy between two different things. Let's see what he says. He says, so I say walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, when he says flesh, he doesn't mean the body. He's not talking about like you won't be hungry and thirsty. The flesh there is the Greek term sarx. It's a spiritual power uh, that comes from like the, the, the desires and passions and appetites that are rampant in our world. Those things are at fight within you. And those desires, they want the opposite of what the Spirit wants for you. And the Spirit wants the opposite of what that Spirit wants for you. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. It's a good thing we don't live in a culture where we ever hear that you should do whatever you want, right? <laughs> but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Do you want to know what a life looks like that's under the control of the spiritual power of flesh? It looks like this. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord. Ever been jealous? Ever had a little fit of rage on the freeway? Selfish ambition, dissensions. Ever been to a church where there's factions? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before, those people who live like this, they won't inherit the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God's not like that. If you want to know what a life looks like that's under the control of the Spirit, the fruit of that Spirit is that your life is in the settled condition on a daily basis of love and joy and peace. In a way that you, when you interact with other people, because you stand on a foundation of love and joy and peace, you only ever interact with somebody with forbearance, which means patience, 
with patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And what's the last one? The ability to keep this together is the fruit of the Spirit. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have what? Crucified it with all of its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. I used to think that the fruits of the Spirit were a great benefit for me because what that meant is I could see what was happening in people's lives by the way that they acted, and I could decide. Jesus told a little story about good trees and bad trees. It's real simple. He said if you're a good tree, then you produce good. And if you're a bad tree, you produce bad. So I just thought my job was to look at people's fruit and decide who's a good tree and who's a bad tree. So I went around churches and went like, good, 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 bad. You're out. Good, 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 bad. You're out. The fruit is an immense gift for us, not for judging who are good trees and who are bad trees. The fruit is an immense gift for us so we can look at our own lives, which are actually both trees. I'm both trees. There's some branches on me that bear love and joy and peace, and there's some branches on me that are filled with things that I would love to Mr. Hide from you. But if I hide it, I can't heal it. So the fruit is there by God's mercy so that I could look at a branch of my life and I could say, is this a good branch or a bad branch? Sometimes it's hard to tell, but if I look at the fruit, is this selfish ambition or love and joy and peace and patience and kindness? Just one other word about this. You cannot do this by yourself. The fruit is also there so other people can see it. And it's important for us as Christian people to have someone or some other people in our lives who have enough courage and enough of a relationship with you to go, hey, you see that branch right there? It's ugly. It needs to go. I, I, I'm going to walk with you, but let's get rid of that. Let's replace that with some love and some joy and some peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. If you're at Woodland Hills or if you're podcasting and you don't have relationships like this, you need the church. You need a group of people. You need a person who can help you do fruit identification because the problem is is you will lie to yourself. I can do this and still be a good person. You're both trees. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde both live in you and there's a fight and it's a spiritual fight to produce fruit and it's no joke because at stake is the thing that is most valuable you're fighting for your soul Jesus is trying to save your soul and making a commitment to Christ isn't a one time solution to that like I made a commitment to Christ and so now my soul is saved and things are fine We at this church believe that discipleship is an ongoing conversion, one branch at a time, turning fruit that looks to death, that fruit to fruit that looks like life. But here's the good news. Even if you feel like 99.9% of your branches are death and 0.1% is good, God loves you anyway and will not love you more because your branches transform. The person who will have a better experience of you if your branches transform is you. Your soul will find rest when you're able to live a life of integrity there. Okay, a few other things I have to say, and then I'm going to wrap up. I want you to know my biggest problem with this whole situation is I have an overinflated vision of my will. I think that I'm a strong-willed person. My mom told me I am. 
And I do oftentimes fool myself and think, oh, I got this problem in my mind or my body or with a relationship. I don't need my soul. I don't need God to help me. I'll muscle this thing. Most amazing thing happens in the Dr. Jekyll story. Uh, He decides he doesn't want to be Mr. Hyde anymore. And so he goes on a three-month hiatus from Mr. Hyde, and he's done great things. He's, like, served the poor. He's, like, gone through a self-improvement program. He's decided that he can heal himself. So one day he's sitting in a park, and he's looking around at the people that are around him, feeling really proud of himself, and starting to consider how much he's actually a much better person than that person and that person and that person. And as he looks at his hand, he sees that he's not Dr. Jekyll. He's actually Mr. Hyde. You cannot fix yourself. There's only one person that can heal you. And that's the person who lived his whole life willing one thing to do the will of the Father, whose mind was only ever filled with thoughts of love and joy and peace and generosity and patience, who beat his body into submission and allowed it to be beaten. Do you remember in the garden, the most difficult night of his life? What did he say to the Father? He said, my spirit is willing But man, this thing right here wants to break down. And yet he still strode onto the scene and walked onto that cross so that your soul and my soul can be healed. He said, listen, it will not profit you anything if you gain everything in the world and if you lose your soul. Your soul is so important that I'll die for it to heal it. The way that a life like this gets transformed is, first of all, by making a choice. Jesus issued this challenge all the time. To the rich young ruler, he said, do you want to be rich or do you want to save your soul and get your life back? Make your life about one thing, surrendering to God. There are some of you here that have never made that decision to surrender to God, and I pray that you would. And there's some of you that have surrendered to God, but you've got minds and thoughts and mental patterns that need healing. I pray that you would take a step and do something with that. There's lots of sources of help. There's a great book that our pastor wrote, Greg Boyd, called Escaping the Matrix. It's available at the Media Center. Some of you have a body that's filled with addictions and appetites. And these two things are eating your will for breakfast. But I want you to know you're not in this fight alone. It's not all up to you, but you will play a role in it. You and God staying in step with the Spirit can do some amazing things. God's a great partner, but he's not going to force you, and he's not going to do it without you. This last, uh, I just got back from uh, vacation in California, and when I was first dating my wife, um, my wife found out I was from Los Angeles, and she asked me if I had surfed, and my will wanted to, to date her. Um, I had selfish ambition, and I also wanted to be a good person, so my mind told my body to lie to her. I told her I surfed. I had never surfed before in my life. We got married. Uh, After we got married, I told her that I lied to her about surfing because by this time she was stuck and couldn't do anything about it. Uh, But this uh, last week on vacation, I decided, well, I lied about it, but maybe I can make it retroactive. I'll surf while we're on vacation, and then maybe that'll make up for the fact I didn't. I tried surfing. I got killed. It's super hard. Uh, I found out, like, the more I tried to muscle and work at it, the worse it got. Here's the thing about surfing and how it's connected to this work of the fruit of the Spirit. Is there any surfing without a wave? Can you make a wave? It's the same thing with your spiritual life. You you can't make a wave. 
The Spirit blows where it wants to. The Spirit will bring a wave, and it's not your job to make the wave, but it is your job to paddle and try to get up on your feet and ride that thing. And if you fall down because you will, it's an amazing thing about waves. There's always one after it, you know? In this work of healing your soul, you will need grace. And it will come from the one who only ever showed grace to us. How is your soul? How is your will? How is your mind doing? How is your body? How are your relationships? How is your soul? May we do a better job of caring for our souls so that our lives are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. May God continue to save your soul and to save mine. Because the difference between being in the fight between the flesh and the soul before Jesus strode on the scene, that was a war that we were never going to win. For those of you that are committed your life to Christ, you are now still fighting a war against the flesh, but you are now in a fight that you will not and cannot lose because you fight with the person who's the biggest victor and the greatest king our world has ever seen. Amen? All right, stand to your feet. Let me close in prayer. Uh, after I get done with the prayer, the prayer teams are going to be up front. If there's anything that you want to pray about, making a decision to line up your will with Jesus or seeking some help with your mind and your body, they're going to be available to pray for you to do that. Let me just say a word of blessing over you. Jesus, you, you saved our soul, and that's not a small thing. Lord, the branches of my life that still have death on them, I, I can't face them by myself. Um, I pray that your spirit, when I think of, we, we said like, spirit, blow on through. We're ready for you. I, I'm ready for that. I pray that your spirit would continue to transform my life and those of the people that are here. That our, our branches bear fruit that brings life to the people that are around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. Amen.